Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Adam Franti, who is a member of the Maya Freyfechter Guild and an organiser of the Midwest Historical Fencing League. Uh, he also started the Lansing Longsword Guild in the summer of 2017, which focuses on Maya's longsword. And... He is a fellow podcaster, host of a show called Murder Hobos, which covers chivalry, dueling, and warfare. So, without further ado, Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's very nice to meet you, and nice to know that we have at least one friend in common. Yeah, <laughs> <And> my- yeah. <laughs> so, how, how do you know Heidi? Uh, Heidi is partners with Chris Van Slambrook, who is yeah. right now the like the Hauptman, I think is the official title, of the Meyer Factor Guild. Um, okay. and he's he's one of the the big organizers of the Fry Factor Guild in the Midwest, yeah. and he and I have uh, like helped plan and put together and run the Madtown Factual uh, for the last several years in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Ah, splendid. Okay, so you're in Madison at the moment. I'm I'm in Lansing at the moment. Lansing. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I know Lansing quite well. Yeah. Because um, the International Sword Fighting and Martial Arts Convention used to be held there every year. Yeah, did that, you ever go? that's I no no I never did. Uh, I I have a sort of a complicated like backstory with regard to Hema, but I by the okay. time I moved up to Lansing, I think that that had become uh, it's um what is it, it? in it in became Vegas Combat now, right? Con yeah Combat it, Con yeah it, yeah it started out in Lansing and then in mm-hmm. about two thousand six it moved to Detroit because they lost access to the facility they were using in Lansing mm-hmm. um, and then. Um, there was, then they moved to, after two years in Detroit, maybe they moved to mm-hmm. Las Vegas and rebranded it as Combat Con. Yeah. I was, uh, completely unaware in 2010 or so, or two, by, by like 2009 that anything like this existed. Um, I had done modern fencing for a few years in college. Mm-hmm. So I was an epee fencer and, uh, I wanted it to be rapier, but of course it wasn't. And I didn't know that anybody actually fenced with rapiers right. outside of like the SCA. And where I was in college, there was no SCA. And uh, 
so I did that for a while, and then I saw the documentary Reclaiming the Blade in 2009 oh. or so, and then just Googled WMA Clubs Michigan and saw that there was one that was actually literally run in my town. <laughs> um, and I, you, you may have met him. His, uh, the guy who ran it was named Josh Little. Rings um, a bell. And he, he'd had a, a club, study group, whatever you want to call it, for, for some time by then and was running – uh, what he called Ars Gladi out of a out of a school, and I went mm-hmm. there for a few months, and then so that was like my introduction to like of course I wanted it to be rapier <laughs> at the time, <laughs> and so my introduction to longsword was like oh this is cool this is really like intricate and subtle and and like much like you know because I of course had the the common idea that you know knights just stumbled around hacking and slashing at each other yeah. without. It's art, a bizarre right? idea. Where, yeah. like, where the hell does that idea come from? The notion that professional warriors right. with loads of money <laughs> and right. access to the sort of people who could build things like, you know, the cathedral in Siena. Right. Yeah. Right. And and could do this incredible metalwork and made these amazing swords and amazing suits of armor. The notion that they would just sort of stumble around and bash each other like drunken five-year-olds is right. just yeah like it's bizarre yeah yeah and it's so pervasive right and like i yeah. i was a history major in my undergrad i didn't concentrate on the medieval period or anything but like mm-hmm. you know i knew that i actually specifically remember i had a class where we had to do like a book review and i asked if i could do a book review on the once and future king oh yeah because i was like this has some you know historical it's content. a fantastic book and i remember writing a, a big chunk of that article about or the that like paper about the the scene with um i can't remember who the the two knights are but they're literally just stumbling around crashing into each other right it's like yeah. played for for laughs and like i remember writing like this isn't realistic like they armor fit and it was like yeah. <laughs> you know it was customized <laughs> and like they'd be able to move and breathe and <laughs> um so, like, I was aware of it at a certain sense, but I had never, like, tried it, right? And so I yeah. tried it for the first time. I was like, this is this is really cool. And um, I did that for a few months. And then I got a job uh, working on Mackinac Island as a historical interpreter. Okay. So, What is Mackinac up, Island? Mackinac Island is in Lake Huron. Okay. It's, um, uh, it was a fur trade post for the British – or for the French first and then the British and then the United States – um, for all sorts of kind of political and economic reasons in the Great Lakes, but for, for relations with the Native Americans around the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And it was a military fort that was first built. Like there was a fort up there that was first built in the 1680s by the French. Okay. Um, and uh, in the 1790s, the United States took over and they sort of finished the fort the British had been building. And it was a military post until the 1870s. And it became a... It was the headquarters of a national park for a while. Wow. So Mackinac okay. Island was actually, it's a state park now, but it was a national park for 20 years um, from, I think, 1873 to 1893. And uh, so I worked up there. It's it's basically like a sort of historic tourist site now. Like, right. So you would be in costume wandering about yes. pretending to yep. be a settler. Yeah, I was, uh, I we were interpreters of soldiers that worked at the mm-hmm. fort. Uh, in the national park period, so okay. we were in American uniforms. Uh, so head to toe. So that's actually a paying job. Yes. Yep. Wow. Only yeah. in America. And only yeah. in America. <laughs> uh, 
I worked there from 2011 to 2014, and that was the or 2015. I don't know, a, a while. Some time ago. And that was the anniversary of, or the the, I guess anniversary is the right word of the War of 1812. Right. And Mackinac was captured by the British in the War of 1812, and so from 2012 to 15, we did. Um, War of 1812 sort of reenactment stuff as well. Okay. So that's when I got a lot of practice shooting muskets and no, reloading muskets. muskets. Oh, yeah. so much fun. Um, and so like in between when I stopped, uh, like in between working with Josh Little for the couple months I did and then 2015 when I was going to grad school and I started fencing again, I was basically just doing nothing but like black powder martial arts, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so when you were working on this island, um, they didn't also train you in in period swordplay. No, unfortunately, because the soldiers would have known. I mean, a lot of those soldiers were carrying swords. Yeah. So the for the most part, the during the war it was a bit weird because they had just to jam as many people on there as they could that they could still feed and everything but most of the, most of the time the garrison was uh, artillery troops and artillery troops were very commonly issued with swords of some kind yeah um so whether or not they fenced i don't know like the, it was a the, the US army was really really small and mm. not terribly well organized and fencing was never really a big important part of at least like american training okay um but, you know, it, it would have depended on officers. It would have depended on who was there and what they wanted to do. And sometimes, like, getting your men to train with bayonet exercises or fencing or whatever was a way to keep them out of the saloons, which was, <laughs> sure. which was a pretty big part of managing armies uh, in the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so you were drilling with muskets. Yeah. I mean, you must have... It, it takes a certain sort of person to want to dress up as an early 19th century soldier and march around for yeah. four years. Yeah, um, I loved it. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Now, now, you are not alone. There are yep. many people listening who absolutely love the sort of the living history side of things, wearing the clothes and, and you know, we've had people on who do, you know, period cookery and making period clothing and, you know, we're, you're, you're amongst friends. Yep. There is no judgment here. Um, actually, you're reminding me of a bit of um, Milo Thurston, who was on a while ago, who does a lot of um, sort of Napoleonic era reenactments. So, mm -hmm. same sort of period. Yeah. Uh, Waterloo was 1815, so mm -hmm. War of 1812 was just a bit before. Um, so, okay. What is it like being a soldier in the early 19th century? Well, we're lucky in that most of the problems that you probably have to deal with as a soldier in the early 19th century are pretty firmly dealt with when you're, yeah. you're working an eight hour day at a historic site. Uh, I don't have to worry about disease. I don't have to yeah. worry about like smallpox or yeah. catching a cold and dying. Um, I, you know, get to go home to a warm bed every night. And <laughs> um, so the biggest, the biggest issues for, especially for soldiers in the war of 1812 was like food and resupply. And right. we have records of, of men who like are described as like literally naked. And of course they mean naked in that, like they have a patchy waistcoat, not that they're literally yeah. walking around without clothes. Yeah. Um, but uh, like getting, getting uniforms, um, treating people who were sick uh, was always a big thing. So w when you don't have to worry about that, 
it's a lot different <laughs> and it's a sure. lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's a wool uniform. So we were wearing the British uniform of about the mid-war period. So we had um, like wool trousers, uh, a wool, they called it a coatee, yeah. and then um, a linen undershirt, a neck stock, and a shako. And so it's it honestly pretty, pretty wool. It is, but it, you know, like my wool is actually a lot more comfortable than I think people give it credit for. Okay. Um, it breathes really well, and there was there was always a, a pretty nice breeze. Like we're we're up on like a hundred feet up above the lake uh, at at the fort, and so we always had a, a pretty pretty good breeze coming through. And if you stayed in the shade and were conscious of the of of the breeze, it was perfectly comfortable even on really hot days. Okay. Um, I mean, it's always going to be you're always going to be hot if it's 90 degrees out, no matter yeah. what. Right. And so like, there's something to be said for the fact that wearing head to toe wool keeps the sun off of you for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little bit more comfortable than I think people might expect. Um, and I'm a big fan of wool. I, we could make this whole episode about me. Dis- dis- <laughs> well, we have knitters on the show. Yeah. So, so by, by all means, by all means. Okay. Yeah. Your subject is wool. Go. Yeah. So, well, it, you know, the wool can be a wide variety of different sort of uh, warp and weft. I don't know what the per- particular term is, but like you can make it very, very, very fine, almost like gossamer, mm-hmm. like very fine. You yeah. can make it really tightly fitted. So like when we look at like late 15th century wool hose that look like tights, they're literally yeah, skin I've, tight. I have a pair you know? and, yeah. and getting them on takes a little bit. Once they're on, <laughs> they're like skin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's – it's a miracle fabric and actually like um, things like Under Armour and modern performance fabric actually try to mimic the properties of wool in a microscopic way yeah. that shocks people when you say that. Cause it's like, it wicks moisture. It's, it dries really quickly. Uh, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's naturally antibacterial too. Yeah. It's cause I mean, sheep, sheep depend on it. And, and right. if, if it was subject to lots of bacterial infections, the sheep would die. Yeah. So it has evolved to be naturally protective against bacteria right. and whatnot. So my, my favorite thing was always, so uh, the fort's up at the top of a hill and you have to literally walk up like two hills to get into the main entrance of the fort. And there would be people who would like literally mopping their brow with sweat and they're wearing like a like a windbreaker or something. It's basically just plastic, right? And they're just yeah. sweating buckets and they come up <laughs> and they, they like look me up and down and say like, you must be hot. It's like, well, yeah, it's 95 degrees out. Of course I'm hot, but like, <laughs> like Not there's something ironic about yeah somebody just like literally wiping sweat from their face and then telling me that i'm hot <laughs> okay. so do you do any any work with fabric yourself i not really i'd okay. like to i don't know that i have the patience for it um i uh yeah i'd like to so my wife actually made me a 16th century outfit so i've got like the the Meyer style like pluterhosen and i've got a nice linen uh uh i I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason most people who do Meyer do Meyer is because they want this excuse to wear pluterhosen and that's it that that might be a big part of it (laughs) (laughs) um but it's yeah it's so i I have that i I wear it only for special occasions because it's like linen and wool and silk so i don't want to like ruin it by having people cut at it with a sword Mm -hmm. um but that's that's most of what I do. I don't really I don't I'm not active as a reenactor. I think the closest thing that I have now is I play vintage baseball. That's actually the top hat up here. That okay, I, I should point out for the, the listeners that um, 
there are three hats clearly visible on the wall um, behind Adam's head. And one of them is, yes, it is very, now you say it, it is obviously a, like, what, early 20th century baseball cap? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to convince my baseball team members that wool is better than 60% rayon. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, like, we have we have very, very... Uh, very hot uniforms and every day I just say like I really wish this was wool and everybody just rolls their eyes <laughs> <laughs> what, what you should do maybe maybe if you have the gear lend it to people and when everyone's had yeah. a go in the wool they will realize how superior the old ways are to the new yeah now, I mean, why would you about... wear plastic for god's right. sake right yeah yeah um, but yeah, so that, that's, I don't, I don't really reenact that much. I've got a, I've got a musket and I have a, uh, an 1880s rifle, um, mm-hmm. that I go shoot every now and again, but I, I'm not active as a reenactor right now, unfortunately. Okay. But I think after four years of living in a fort and reenacting all day, every day, I think that probably, it's like, I, I did cabinet making for four years and mm. for a long time after that, maybe it was five years, for a long time after that, I barely touched a chisel. Because yeah. I sort of got it out of my system. And right, yeah. <laughs> now, now I'm a massive woodworker again and I, I make stuff all the time. And, mm. um, but yeah, there was, a, I took quite a long break off it. And it was when my wife was pregnant with my first child. I was like, I can't have my baby in a, one of those prison cots, you know, with <laughs> bars. So I made a cot for her, which, it has instead of having bars it's got these plywood panels with cutouts with like bunnies and trees and things and yes one end of the cot now each end of the cot has a tree and the tree at one end of the cot is modeled after the tree in the at the end of the getty manuscript of of the battalion right because of course you know yeah you've got to have a fiori (laughs) reference in there somewhere right yeah um but yeah that kind of got me back into the woodworking thing but there was maybe seven years where i didn't really do very much just because i've sort of done it Mm-hmm. Um, so okay so you're not reenacting but you are very active in sort of historical martial arts stuff and we've mm-hmm. sort of mentioned Maya already but I, get, yeah. I gather you are primarily a Mayaist mm-hmm. okay why <laughs> Pluto well, obviously, yes obviously the Pluto Pluto pants, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I when I started going to grad school I went to grad school in uh, Ypsilanti Michigan which is right mm-hmm. next to Ann Arbor and I looked up uh, HEMA clubs again nearby because I wanted to get back into fencing and um, Eastern Michigan I don't think had a fencing club or they had and it was defunct or something I don't know um, so I looked up and I found the, a place called the Ann Arbor Sword Club um, it's run by a couple guys named Dave Hornstra and uh, Terry Gruber. And it's mostly like it's modern fencing for the most part, but it's literally just a sparring club once a week. You come in, okay. bring whatever, you just fence, right? And and it's uh, it's a really chill atmosphere and it was really fun. And Dave so you just, and Terry just show up and fight. Brilliant. Yeah. And, okay. and Dave and Terry are honestly like two of the best fencers I've ever fenced. They're so they're wow. superb fencers and they're really fun. And like the atmosphere is just very chill and relaxed and just fun. welcoming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I started with a friend of mine just playing around with the long swords again. They had like a intro to HEMA class once a year. And, you know, you go through that. And I was like, I vaguely remember some of this from years and years ago. And so we started playing around with it and. That was in 2015, 
which was around just when the first edition of Four Gangs Meyer translation came out. Ah, so yeah. On top of that being pretty new and being accessible, uh, Dave Hornstra is a close friend of Jeff Forgang. Um, right. Forgang actually used to live in Michigan, and the two of them were really close friends and like fenced all the time. So I had this sort of like connection through Dave to Forgang, and through Forgang, I was like, "Well, let's try this one out." And uh, I think the moment I kind of got serious about Meyer was I went to an event and took a class on Meyer Rapier with Rob Rutherford. Okay. And that was the first time I had seen someone move like the images, like the woodcuts looked, yeah. right? Like I had always sort of thought like that big turned out front foot, you're just going to like break your knees. What are you doing? Um, uh, and then I saw uh, Rob it's, flowing it's, through it's, these. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, it's oh, it, oh, it blew my mind. Yeah. And so like I went back and like wouldn't shut up about it and started practicing just foot turning and hip hip dynamics and everything and it's and one of the things you've got to get it right. That, yeah. If you don't get it right, you will fuck your knee, but if you yes. do get it right, it's perfectly <laughs> safe for the knee. Yeah. 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 And it, that that was that was the moment I was like, okay, I'm this is the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to concentrate on it and, and okay. do it. So Cuz you were seduced by the footwork, not the poofy. Yes. Pants. I mean, it's a bit of both. <laughs> um, and I mean, one of the big, one of the big things at first too, was that like the, the woodcuts in Meyer are just, are so beautiful. They're so elegant and they're so yeah. detailed and they're so just like, I could stare at them for, for hours. You can't see it on, but I've got a big, like kind of cut out thing right on my wall, just behind the, the monitor here. But yeah, they're, and so that was part of it. And the other part of it was just like, it's sometimes fun to just play around with, like reading through the Stuka and just trying stuff out. It was pretty fun. But then like being able to connect it to like, okay, this is depicting some pretty serious and effective methods of movement. And then being able to extrapolate that and the rest mm -hmm. of the things. And then like, and I've more or less been reading it constantly and thinking about it all the time ever since. So, <laughs> um, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So you've, you've been seduced by the footwork. Honestly, I think, for me, at least, the most interesting thing in Maya is the mechanics. Um, I don't do Maya mm. in any depth because I don't read German and I don't like depending on translations. Um, yeah. But, yeah, he has he has a lot of really interesting things going on and it's really interesting to me particularly how the hip placement stuff and the foot placement stuff, it's different to what Vigiani was writing 20 years earlier. But it has a, a very similar purpose. And it, to my mind, mm -hmm. that turned out front foot has a lot in common with Fiori's stepping the foot out of the way. Yep. It yep. Basically, it opens up the space for the hips to turn to the, mm -hmm. the side that the foot is going. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, so a part of it too was, was you mentioned you know languages. I, I took German in high school and a tiny ah, bit in college. So I was okay. pretty familiar, like... I, I could read a good chunk of it when I started just looking at the German. Right. And then obviously since then I've, I've done a lot more work and I've, I've been working on my own about it. And I can read German pretty comfortably. And I've done I, – I made a translation for myself of Andre Parnfeind, who was an early 16th century uh, writer yeah. um, who, who did some sword and messer and – staff sort of thing and i recently translated um the guts von berlickingen autobiography um and that was part of what led me so to start have you podcast. published that anyway 
No, I, I, so I have the, the translation is complete, mm-hmm. but I'm writing like biography sections because like part okay. of the thing, part of the fun for me when I was translating, it was like, okay, what is he talking about now? Because he would just mention these things back to back and sort of without really any reference to time. And so I was mm-hmm. like, all right, what, what is this conflict that he's part of? And so I'd go and read about Ulrich von Württemberg for a while. And so like, I have these big chunks that are kind of setting the context of what he's talking about so right. that you can actually learn something rather than just be confused the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so you're actually, you're producing, shall we say a scholarly edition with a translation yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and without, without putting too much heavy emphasis on the word scholarly it just means it just means yeah. takes an, a proper academic approach and interest it doesn't mean it's impossible to read because it's so badly written right yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I hope not it might be I've not yeah. seen your work so you know you might yeah. be the worst writer on the planet but <laughs> I doubt it I mean you know my, my professional background is literally a historical interpreter like my job is to make history accessible to people who might not care about it because you know they're they're forced to be there on a family vacation and right so like that's my professional background is pointed towards popular history right and so i i have a i have a lot of respect for that and and i have a respect for the role that fiction and podcasts and other kind of popular media play in people's perceptions of history Mm -hmm. and how they get into it so like yeah uh, like the point is to make it accessible and easy to read and, and even the translation that i did is trying to not necessarily modernize the language but to make it readable in the same way that like if you can read the german and you can get your brain switched to the 16th century gear where it's like okay here's the start of the sentence yeah. and then like here's 14 unrelated clauses and that here's the end of the sentence and yeah. you can kind of get your brain to click with that like Gus is a really entertaining writer. He's funny. And like, there's, there's a lot of like subtle digs that like he, he talks about the emperor a couple times and like relays some jokes and stuff. And it's like, it's really hard to get with a literal translation because it's, it's just so patchy and, and uninteresting. Honestly, literal translation. I mean, the, the strict definition of a literal translation is a word by word, direct translation. Yeah. Right. Which doesn't take into account the phrases or the context. Right. And they're completely useless. Mm-hmm. They have, honestly, they have no place in anything, I don't think, because, right. like, in, in many cases, a, a word in the target language can have, like, five different possible English translations, yeah. all of which mean completely different things. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I'm, I'm glad you're actually writing it. So, basically, my feeling of the translation is, if the person, a modern person reading it now should feel the same way about it as a person who was a native speaker of the target of the original language in the time that it was written, it should be that clear, right? Yeah. So if the, if the original writer was a terrible writer and everything is very unclear, it's all right for the translation to be unclear because you're just, you're reproducing that experience. Right. Um, but yeah, so when when will the book be done? Uh, I depends on how hard I work on it. <laughs> um, I've got so most of it's done. There are a couple of uh, more complicated sort of um, context parts I have to write. So there's uh, Gotz was involved in the German Peasants War, and so I'm trying to write 
something no longer than three or four pages long that covers kind of like what was going on with the German Peasants' War, which is okay. difficult because it's a pretty complicated conflict. Yes. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's mostly just like I'm waiting until I'm satisfied <laughs> with what I've done, <laughs> yeah. um, which and I'm my own harshest critic. So, uh, you know, hopefully soon. But I'll, I'll be happy to send you a draft. Um, oh, sure. And, and when it's done and published, you should come back on the podcast and we can tell everybody about it. Sure. That would be good. Um, because there's one of the hardest things. I mean, writing a book is hard. Editing it and producing it so it's actually publishable is yeah. just as hard. Yeah. Um, and then letting the people who would be interested in it, if they knew about it, know about it is yeah. just as hard again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, I, I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to the, to the problem of someone writing in an obscure niche who very much yeah. <laughs> needs to get in touch with the sort of people who might actually want to buy his book. Right, right. Um, okay, so getting back to Maya, which I'm sure you'll be thrilled mm-hmm. to do. Um, yeah. Now, in in the thing, I mean, you call your club the Lansing Longsword Guild, right? Yeah. So, are you focusing on the longsword stuff or longsword is kind of our what kind of main? And it's mostly because like the longsword has the most uh, visible presence in Hema, um, and okay. the. So, like, we call it Longsword Guild mostly because, like, uh, Lansing Historical Fencers Guild or Lansing, you know, it's a little longer. And just LLG is a nice kind of short, okay. you know, nice thing. So we do most of – I assume that most of the beginners come in are mostly interested in Longsword. Um, and my sort of basic beginners sort of curriculum thing is structured on the Longsword. But uh, I encourage people to play with everything. Um, and like everything within what Meyer teaches, so that's Dussac and Rapier and Dagger and Polearms, but also if they're interested in, say, you know, Fiore or if they're interested in later Rapier or they're interested in military cutlass or whatever, I encourage them to play with it as well because, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to be a roadblock to somebody's interest. I want to oh, be a, a benefactor. I want to be somebody who is who helps them. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 part of your job as the instructor to help them find the thing that's most interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so there's there's an awful lot of guff that gets talked about by a longsword, and yeah, and it, it suffers from being uh, a part of a larger system. Um, and it's the part of the larger system that appears to be exclusively sportive, mm. right? Because in 1570s Germany, people were not wandering around with longswords as sidearms, and they weren't generally fighting duels with longswords. They were using, if they were civilians, they were using rapiers like civilized people, and more military-minded people would be using dusakken, right? Hoofing great big cutting swords. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, like, oh, oh military yeah, guys. You just probably, agree with me. You go ahead. Yeah. Shoot, shoot. Well, That's fine. so we know that, like, you're probably using a rapier in the mid 16th century, for yeah. sure. Like, if, if, you're, no, if, like, if you're any kind of civilized person, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, I like, the, the distinction between military people and civilians in the 16th Later. century is very blurry. It's yeah, extremely yeah, sure. blurry. And so, 
Um, we know that as early as the 1520s, people who lived in cities would probably be carrying rapiers as a sidearm, or at least something that we might call a rapier. And yeah. I don't, I don't really want to get into this side whole sword, rapier, side sword. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, long, but, long but, pointy sword yeah. with a complex hilt. Yes, yeah. Um, and so we know, like, but there's also like, you know, obviously art isn't photograph. The photography, yeah. right? It doesn't actually necessarily depict reality. It depicts sort of what people believe reality is. Yeah. In a certain, in a weird way. So, like, obviously, there's a reason to depict people who live in cities carrying rapiers. But there's the same sense of where you, in order to show like this guy's a soldier, you give him a Kotzbalger. Whether or not soldiers actually carried Kotzbalgers at the time, it was something that people believed indicated that that's a soldier. Rather, right. or that's a mercenary, right? That's a landscape rather than uh, a Swiss guy, because they they continue showing Swiss uh, mercenaries wearing long swords into the 17th century in art. So right. whether that's reflective of reality or whether that's just because that's the artistic tag that says this guy's Swiss, is a complicated question. So okay. most of the time, at least of the duels that I know of, most of the writers just say sword. Yeah, um, of course. And I think it's fair to to assume that most of them are single-handed cutting thrusting swords like rapiers um but we also know that duels are meant to be fair and there are there are duels i'm aware of where people actually went home to get their sword yeah so you know or they had to borrow somebody else's because they had to have the same weapon yeah they just didn't happen to have a sword with them at the time right um so i think it's it's possible that people were still fighting dueling with uh, long swords, and I think it's possible that uh, people marching on campaign or or mustering in the militia might have carried a long sword, um, but we don't know. Um, and I think the distinction that modern people make about sport versus quote unquote martial is also pretty blurry in the 16th century. Like okay. factual and were serious business. Like they were they were meant to be this way to show off your martial virtue and your citizenship and your prowess and just define an effect school for the listeners who might not be aware yeah uh so effectual was a fencing festival i think is probably the best way to put it it was um either a private it could be very private and you just hire a fencing master to oversee this sort of fencing competition um, or it was, they took place in massive public parades and, and as part of huge holidays. And so like things like the Nuremberg fair, which was a huge yearly thing, probably would have had a factual and probably would have had a shooting fest and probably would have had these sort of martial games attached to them because they were, they were important for the sense of like an event German citizenship, such as it was in the yeah. 16th century. Um, so they were fencing competitions. They used blunt swords, but the idea was to, score a bleeding wound on your opponent's head. And that would determine the winner of that particular bout. And the winner would would earn two golden, which was about a week and a half pay for like an average journeyman. That's a significant Um, chunk of cash. It is. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be like a few hundred bucks today. So like not nothing life changing, but a pretty fair amount, like certainly enough to buy drinks for everybody else at at the end of the night. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but uh, so they, they were taken pretty seriously. And we know that Meyer um, petitioned the city of Strasbourg to run at least three of them. So he would have been the Fechtmeister. He would have been the guy basically running the entire show. Right. Um, and it took some serious chops to convince the city council to let you do that. So he, he must have been able to demonstrate his skill 
with a sword. Whether that was just depth, like showing them a big book, like look, I've written this manuscript. I'm I must be really cool, or whether yeah. it was because like he actually you know fenced a few people and they were like, this guy know what he's talking about. Um, we don't really know, but we know that he did petition to run a few factual and, and he did run a few factual and, and they were pretty big, huge events that drew people from all around. So it's like a very serious fencing competition. Yeah. And it, I mean, it still is, the intent is to be non-lethal, but right. we do know that people died in them sure. commonly. Uh, and, and actually there's, uh, there's a record of a guy who died at a factual in 1591 in Augsburg. And this was uh, especially annoying because uh, Augsburg had only just recently made factual and legal again okay. because they had been too violent for too long. And the city council was like, that's enough. And then like two <laughs> years later, they finally had a guy who's like, okay, we're, we're going to start him back up again. And someone immediately died. So, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <clears throat> so we know that they could be very violent. And the expectation was that people were risking themselves. They were risking their health and they were risking their lives to perform in this very particular way. But the idea was not to kill people. And it, but that's yeah. the same as dueling, right? Dueling isn't necessarily about killing people either. It's about showing off. It's about proving your your prowess and your virtue. Yeah, well, yeah, your, your honor is established by the fact that you showed up. Yeah, yep. Right? And it's, it's, a, it's a common misconception, like knights kind of clanging into each other because they can't walk yep. properly in their armor <laughs> that that you know the idea was to duel to find a winner mm. right that's true in a judicial duel but in a kind of 16th 17th century duel of honor it's somebody's honor has been impugned and yeah honor is satisfied by them showing up and fighting it doesn't actually just because one one person happens to survive and the other one happens to die doesn't mean that the person who dies was therefore dishonorable or wrong. Right, right, yeah. And like even dying in a duel was proof that you were a man. Honorable, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's 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 another one of those misconceptions, I think, that sort of bleeds into this, the idea that you're talking about with Meyer is this kind of, oh, well, he's just a sport guy. And like, yeah, you know. Which, which, which let the record show, I have never said. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, but I, I think like having a more nuanced understanding of what sport means. I mean, this was this was at a time where like it was fun to swing cats by the tail, right? It yeah. was it was fun. Like there were fun and games that were pretty horrible to our oh, sensibilities now, cool. yeah. right? So like well, the idea that yeah, the idea that it's like Meyer was just like this this modern sport fencer guy who didn't care about armies or whatever. Like his entire like. If anybody out there is listening and they, they are skeptical, I would just say find a copy of the 1570 and read the introduction and try to count the number of times he refers to soldiers and war because it's a lot. He talks yeah. about it like he, he literally says fencing is warfare in miniature. And he right. talks about how if you understand fencing, you can apply it more broadly to warfare. And he talks about war more than Fiore does. And it's mm. <laughs> like and it's like go and check. I promise you, it's real. Like yeah, no, sure. he talks about, yeah, and it's and but but we have this cartoon idea that like, well, you do Fiore when you want to learn the real killing stuff, and you do Meyer if you want to just do sport. And the thing uh, is too that like, if if you read beyond the longsword, then instantly it's like thrusts and crushing testicles and breaking arms and like <laughs> hurling people to the ground with force and like. Like, it, it, literally in the Dusak section, he has a line that says, like, and don't forget to seize the unmentionables. <laughs> so it's like, that's, 
that's not sportive. That's not fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> it might be fun for the person doing it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. So and the thing is, if, you, if you're doing the rapier with plenty of, I mean, it's got lots of cuts too, but plenty of thrusting, yep. and you're doing the dusa, which is, like, I've, I've seen in the, I think it's the Swedish Royal Armoury Museum in, in Stockholm, walls and walls of these yep. dusaks, which are like a yard long, yeah. And a two inch wide blade, and you swing somebody, you swing at somebody with that, you're going to take their leg off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so he's sort of got that sort of play, and the long sword stuff for the Fex school. But it's, you know, I don't think you're supposed to just do one or the other. I think you're supposed no. to do the whole lot. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, if you find yourself in the sort of fight that you'd normally have a rapier with, but you're holding a longsword instead, you can yeah. run it through their face just fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really easy. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's it's uh, you know it's it's very clearly meant to be. You you read every section, and then you have the whole of the art, right? Yeah. Like, and and even like in terms of like the philosophy that he teaches, right? So he's got the five words, um, which is like the basis of all the German at least the Lieschenauer derived German fencing literature, right? Okay. And so that's strong and weak and four yeah. and nach and indes. Yeah. Um, and so in Meyer's, Meyer wrote his own version of the Zedel, the, the poetic recitation. So he wrote yeah. his own and he's got the big, the first part that's basically like, remember, this is very moral city authorities. This is to teach the youth to not gamble and not drink and not, you know, <laughs> Go whoring, and, yes. <laughs> yeah, and right after that part, the very first thing he mentions is the five words. He gives the five words right away. Right. Um, so he's very clearly still, he considers himself part of this long-term German literature of fencing, right? Yeah. Um, so he's got the five words. He has, you know, the four openings and the parts of the sword and, and all that other stuff. And then he's got um, provoker, taker, hitter, which is a sort of like every single cut can be considered either a cut to provoke your opponent to parry your opponent, a taker, or to hit your opponent. Um, he teaches that in Dussac. And so then, what's the middle one? A taker? Taker. Taker. taker as in one yeah. who takes. Okay. Yes. So provoke, yep. take, hit. Okay. Yep. Um, and he says that you can understand every every action in as one of those things. Yeah. And then in Rapier, he teaches like the four types of fencers. So he's got sort of a temperament sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so like every bit Every bit of this kind of overall system that we know of is taught in different parts of the book. So, like, you right. can read just the longsword and you can come away, I think, as a fairly competent fencer. But if you read the longsword and the dusak, you'll be a better fencer even more if you can internalize the yeah. philosophy, right? And if you read the longsword and the dusak and the rapier and the dagger and the wrestling and the pole arms, you'll have a, a fuller sense of, of what he's trying to teach. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do like about mine is it is very obviously a complete martial art. Yeah, like it has, it has, like like Fiora, it has everything. Well, except mounted yeah. combat, but right, that's that's. He fair. was I mean, working. He apparently was working on that with the um the the manuscript he was working on when he died, um which I, we call the Rostock manuscript. Uh, mm -hmm. I think actually had a section or a planned section that was supposed to be about mounted fencing. Okay. Um, and the the one we recently just found, we're calling the Valdens manuscript, uh, has armored fencing as well. So it has oh, really? like foot combat tournament type stuff. Yeah, that's it. Because Meyer isn't just one book, is it? No, 
So I mean, the one the one everybody thinks of is the fifteen seventy. Yes, and, that's, and that is honestly that's the only one I've ever really looked at. Yeah, and it's it's the most comprehensive. It's the longest. It's the densest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the prettiest, in my opinion, uh, which is obviously very important. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, but so when I when I started, there was um, the the two kind of important works were the, the 1570 treatise, the print uh, the printed treatise. Yeah. There was the what they were dating the 1568, which was the Lund manuscript, which is in Lund, Switzerland, yeah. Sweden, I think. Um, and that was a manuscript that he wrote for a specific nobleman. I I, mm-hmm. I can't recall the name off the top of my head. That he wrote only, or had written. I you, well, I'm sure. I don't think. I don't know that he penned it himself. That's what I mean. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, it, obviously, yeah. it is his work. Pretty obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, one would yeah. normally get a professional calligrapher to write that. Sort yeah, of I mean, like he certainly he certainly hired an artist to do the the images, the painted Im- yeah. images, right? Um, and then we've just uh, we had the unfinished Rostock manuscript, um, which also has a whole bunch of pretty cool stuff in there. And then mm-hmm. only recent, only last year, um, they they found the the Veldens manuscript, which is dated pretty confidently to 1561. And it's another manuscript that he wrote specifically to a person, to a, like a nobleman, yeah. as like here's here's the art of the sword, um, and that has. I think almost everything that the 1570 has. So it's got longsword, dusak, rapier, rapier and dagger, dagger, and some foot combat stuff in armor and pike. So, oh. yeah, a lot, lot of really cool stuff in that one. So he's a he's a pretty sort of thorough. I mean, yeah, if you're into 16th century stuff and you want a complete martial art, Meyer is probably the place to go. Yeah, I would. I would I agree. Would say. Yeah, especially if you read German. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so one of the one of the one of these sort of abiding themes of this podcast is guy wishing he could speak German because <laughs> there's so yeah. much cool stuff written in German and I just yeah. Um, okay, so that I think you've pretty pretty comfortably explained why Maya because really why not and yeah. and they have the different <laughs> But okay, this business of the Dusa, right? I see this. I see practice do sex mm. a lot, which are about 18 to 24 inches long. I mean, they're this big. They're like a, yeah. bow, they're like a big bowie knife, right? Because that, that appears to be sort of the length that they're drawn to most of the time in the plates. Yeah. My feeling is, though, that the sword should be an awful lot bigger. What do you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I think there, so I wrote an article for Mike Chittister and the Le Kuchner, um print that like Hema bookshelf did. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I have it. Um, and so I, I wrote an essay about like the transition from Messer to Dussac, right? Yeah, I really like, ought to have read that before we had this, yeah. this, this, this but I, I've, again, Mike, Michael sent me that, that book because I, I bought it, I can't remember, yeah. or it was included in something. Um, um and it's one of the ones where it's, it's, it's sort of sitting there in my tarif pile because it's all about German stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it right. sort of keeps, yeah. keeps I, not quite <laughs> making it to the top of the pile. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, like Greg's, Greg Mele's, um, the, the two Fiore volumes that they put oh, out, yeah, like yeah. The, the real big ones. And it, it's the same thing. Like it's sitting there and it looks great on the bookshelf and I just like haven't gotten around to it. It's like, oh, oh it's you've got to get around to it because it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. I flipped through it. It is like, I've read part of it and it is really, really good. Um, but, uh, so, so there's part. So part of I think what's going on in the artistic rendering 
of the Dussac is that it was considered by at least the 1570s, by maybe even the 1520s or so, because Parnfeind uses the word Tessac uh, mm-hmm. in his Messer section, um, is that the, the Messer or the Dussac are considered just the generic one-handed sword. That's yeah. the sword that you learn to fence with. That's probably yeah. the one that like kids are fencing with. Yeah. Um, and we know that uh, there's there's records of of Fechulin, private Fechulin that are run for like rich kids, mm-hmm. uh, like their dad throws them that are as young as like six. Wow. And they're probably fencing with this axe. And but they're so, probably not fencing to a bleeding head wound. Probably not a bleeding head wound, because there <laughs> were they they did call them they're wet or dry, and wet oh, is really? obviously that you fence no, to yeah. blood, and dry is when you don't. Yeah. Um, but we know that like little Georg Schurl. Uh, one effectual when he was six and he wow. beat a kid who was eight wow. in order to do it. Yeah. So, what, I mean, like cool. his dad threw the effectual, so it could have easily just been. <laughs> um, but, but you can't uh, really argue with with a bash in the head. I mean, it's pretty obvious right. that someone's been hit in the head. Yeah. Um, okay. But so there, there was probably, there's a sense that that, that you learn the dosak because it's the generic one-handed fencing tool. Yeah. And then once you know how to do that, you can apply it to any weapon in one hand. And so we know yeah. Parnfeind says this openly, and so does Meyer. Like, this is the weapon that you use to learn how to fence with a sword in one hand. Right. I mean, we like to make all these kind of fancy academic distinctions between a Messer and a Storta and a Falchion. Yeah. And they're all just machete, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, my feeling would be you'd, you'd use them all the same way. Yeah. And I think, like, I, I, I put a short, very short list of the various types of sword in one hand that were used in the 16th century in that essay that I wrote. And it's, I, I deliberately made it shorter because if I were to list every single one, we'd be there for days, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's right. like, you know, uh, what is what is the distinction between a Kotzbalger and a Messer? There's, there's not really one, right? Like there's okay. some hilt morphology. Yeah, an academic but, would say, an academic would say it's that, that very round figure eight cross guard mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. makes it's a single-handed weapon with that very round figure. Where basically, yeah. you've got like an ordinary cross-hilted sword, and you mm. bend each bit of the cross guard, each quillen, round to kind of touch yeah. the sword, and so you have this sort of circular thing right. instead of a straight one. And right. that's fundamentally it, I think. Yeah, and I think like if you were to take somebody who's a competent dusak fencer and tell them they're going to fence a dusak bout, and then you hand them a Kotzbalger. no difference. I think they'd be perfectly able to use it, perfectly fine. Um, uh, and if, I think, if they couldn't, you'd have to really worry about how they train. Yeah, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's a blade about yay long, and right. there's your opponent over there with something similar. Off you go. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so I think I think degrees of hand protection do make a difference. Like if you have a simple cross guard, there are things you will not do that you mm-hmm. will do if you have a basket hill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like parrying close to the guard for instance like all the medieval mm-hmm. parries wherever a medieval parry is described is middle to middle always yeah. right because you want that you want your opponent's blade a solid foot at least away from your fingers right but when your fingers are enclosed in a steel basket then it'd be that a rapier or a scavenger yeah. or whatever else um, you know you can you can take the parry much closer to the hand yeah I think but other than that it's basically the same yeah. So yeah, I think I think it was uh just the the sort of reflexive 
this is what people train with. This is what people fence with. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it can be a stick. You just take a stick and whack at your friends with it. I'm sure, like right. kids do that nowadays. And like, sure. you know, the, the idea that, that kids wouldn't be doing that in a culture that's saturated with fencing and wrestling and the sort of martial sports as, as a way to express your manliness yeah. is insane. Like, they, of course they'd be doing that. Yeah, I mean, little kids will be swinging sticks around the way little kids go yeah. around making brum brum noises and pretending to stick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. I'm not sure we can even do this on a podcast, but one thing I would really, really like to do, um, maybe next time I'm over in, in Madison, because I saw Chris and Heidi last time I was there, um, but we didn't actually get any Maya stuff done. But I would... I have my own ideas as to how that sort of footwork stuff we were talking about earlier with the hip mm-hmm. rotations and whatnot, how that works with a single-handed sword. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, it feels almost, I don't know, sinfully nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like if you, when, when you connect it up just right, the way, the way I'm doing it, yeah. it may be not at all what Maya intended, mm-hmm. but you get this sort of I'm so gonna fuck you up and I won't even feel it yeah it's it's so I think Dusak for me was what made a lot of this stuff click right for the first time right and it was so I did that that workshop with Rob Rutherford and that was about the the rapier and I decided arbitrarily it's like all right I've been doing the like the Midwest tournament circuit and everything and they Mm -hmm. had a bunch of like um it's just sword in one hand sort of mixed weapon type tournaments and yeah. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to make Meyer, Meyer rapier sort of my main thing okay. when I do these, these other things. But obviously in order to understand that I should do the disac first. And so I started reading the disac and pra- practicing the disac. And that was when like all of this kind of hip rotation cut stuff and like people pick up a disac and they treat it like a modern saber, like a, yeah, like yeah. a modern fencing saber. Right. And it's like, if you can cut into a cut that somebody else is doing that's just from their wrist because it's such a small little light weapon and you're driving yours from your hip, you'll obliterate them. Yeah. You'll absolutely. Obliterate. And you like, and you do it looking like you're moving slower than they are. Yeah. Right. Looking like, you know, you, you don't, it's just, it's so, there's something that's so satisfying about just like taking one big, long, like cut from around your head and the distance is just perfect. You just like crash through their parry <laughs> and thrust in the face. And it's just, it's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, I don't want to like get you to rewrite everything you're doing, but I have a, a series of um, Dusak videos that I actually did for the HFA okay. before the HFA went defunct. Okay. Um, that is my best representation of what I think it, it ought to look like. Um, I right, send me a link and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. All right. Now, um, I do have to ask, what is a murder hobo? So a murder hobo is, it's a it's an RPG term. It comes from like D&D. Okay. And the idea is basically like you've got a bunch of people playing Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, the game is narrative, right? So like it's, it's, it's unconstrained in a sense yeah. that like video games aren't. And one of the very common things that groups of, of D&D players will do is just like murder everybody. Like they'll like, I want to <laughs> yeah. go buy this potion from this guy. And it's like, well, that potion costs this much and you don't have that much money. So I'll you just kill the guy and take it anyway. Yeah. Because like, you know, what's, what's stopping you? It's only the narrative that's constraining you. And so like, yeah. it's, it's become a sort of uh, a, 
a term that you label certain types of player with because like Dungeons and Dragons is a kind of a game where like this is this this is another way I know Heidi by the way it's like we're both role playing people so like yeah. I I hung out with her a lot at Gen Con uh, like mm -hmm. a month ago um but Dungeons and Dragons is a kind of a game that like really the only meaningful way that you can interact with the world is through violence because everything is based on like how your character does violence. Yeah. And that's just the way the game's built, right? And so like it it makes sense that like you have players who when they're confronted with a narrative obstacle just murder it <laughs> rather <laughs> okay. than, than anything else, right? So it's obviously not everybody, but it's common enough that that the term murder hobo is applied so, to these characters who like are homeless, they're just wandering around. So it's so it's, <laughs> it's applied to a D&D character, it's not applied to the player. Uh half a dozen yeah. of one six of the other right okay <laughs> um but um but yeah so it's it's a certain type of of approach i guess to to a, a style of game like dungeons and dragons okay um, yeah. uh, there's one slight problem with using it for your podcast though because when heidi said you should maybe ask adam onto your show and i went okay i'll have a look and i googled your podcast Mm -hmm. Some other bugger has got an RPG murder hobo podcast on whatever, and I couldn't find yours until yeah. Heidi sent me the direct link. And that's a, yeah. I will put a direct link to yours into the yeah. show notes. But what is the exact name of your show? Uh, it's Murder Hobos, all one word. Okay. That's, and that's the whole name. Okay, just yeah. Murder Hobos. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With Adam Fratty. Yeah. You've got to put the drama in, right? Right. Okay. So. Uh, what obviously I do my research so I actually know the answer to half the questions that I ask on the show but just pretend I don't um, mm -hmm. tell us about your podcast Adam what's it about so my podcast is about uh, basically it's about masculinity and it's violent expression through history okay. and so what I wanted to do um, was I, I was approached by a friend of mine who's another fencer, um, who his name's Tony Williams. And he actually told me to tell you that he learned how to do Fiore, because he, he's a Fiore uh, guy, from your books. So You're kidding. I promised I would tell him that. And, oh, yeah. splendid. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so Tony actually approached me and asked if I wanted to do a podcast. And I kind of always had wanted to, but I didn't want to do the editing. <laughs> Right, and no, so this was sort of a a match made in heaven, where he was like, "I'll do all your editing for you," and I was like, "Sweet, let's do it." Um, and after talking a little bit, we I tried to convince him to let me do a War of eighteen twelve podcast, but he said no. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very niche audience. <laughs> yeah, and so instead, we we were talking. We, you know, we started talking, and the idea came up of of concentrating on sort of these figures that are sort of adjacent to or ancillary to historical fencing like Donald McBain. Or, I love McBain. Yeah. And and so the idea was we'd research these kind of things and kind of really get at the root of what were the cultures they were engaging in, what was like the meaning of all this stuff that they're doing. Like and this is very related to like my master's research, um, which is about I studied the American militia in the War of 1812. And a lot of my research pointed at like they had a very different conception of like what a soldier was and was supposed to be versus yeah. what a citizen is and is supposed to be. And like that sort of expression of citizenship was really, really important. And that's also connected to ideas about dueling in the early 19th century and ideas about just like 
being a good father and a good husband and and it's all twisted up in in these very complicated ideas about masculinity and that's really hard to talk about in a vacuum right like making a writing a book or doing a podcast is basically just like structures of masculinity through history is that same sort of dry academic writing we were talking about you're not going to get many people listening to that right and so what we decided to do was that we would sneak it in by hiding it in a package of interesting violent men in history. So we talk about like William Marshall. Um, obviously William we Marshall. did um, Gods von Berlickingen, which okay. uh, at the at the time just, when we just, pitched- Just for those who don't know, okay. Who is William Marshall? Why should we care? William Marshall was one of the most famous knights in history. He was yep. a, a, a Norman knight in um, the late 12th and early 13th centuries. And See, he you was, call him a Norman knight. I think of him as English. Yeah, that's common. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did um, most of his knighty stuff sort of in relation to England. Yeah, I mean, he was a um, Angevin, right? He right. was he was part of the, the Angevin sort of dynasty empire, whatever you want to call it, um, as opposed to the Capetians. And so, like, you know, I say in my podcast, like, the distinction between English and French at the time is, again, blurry. Yeah. But, um, well, but the yeah, French- there's... These French upstarts had come over a century or so before and had sort of taken right. over the place. Right. So he was, uh, anyway, he was a, a knight commonly considered English now uh, yeah. who was who got famous as a young man because he was like uh, unbelievably good at tournaments. Yeah. Um, and he claimed on his deathbed or before his death to have captured 500 knights. So that's 500 ransoms, which was quite a bit of change. It's a lot of that's money. Because <laughs> this is the sort of tournament where you take your opponents hostage and then their family has to ransom them back. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very different conception of a tournament to the modern human tournament where you hit yes. them with a sword a few times and then they go away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that we should bring like... that back actually. Human tournaments would be a lot more interesting. Let's say let's say I was fencing Jake Norwood in a yeah. human tournament, right? And the winner took the loser back to their house for like <laughs> a month. Yeah. Right? Where you can hang out and fence with each other. And so this is this is a really good idea. Yeah. The winner takes the loser back to their house and then the loser's family has to, I don't know, pay for the flights to get them home again. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be brilliant. Yeah. That well, would be such a good way of doing a tournament. Uh, yeah. And I, well, so I think too, like, that sort of speaks to kind of an element of culture that is a little harder to understand. Because, like, we we have this – modern people have this conception of, like, tournaments and medieval warfare as this, like, absolutely brutal kill fest. Yeah. And it wasn't. Like, people died in battles all the time, of course, and people died in tournaments all the time too. But, like, this was an international peerage. Right? Yeah. And so, like, and it was, you – It was it, – the closest thing, I think, to reasonably modern times – is how pilots interacted with each other in the First World War. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they were very specifically, yeah, kind of basing their ideals on this this perception of of medieval knighthood. Right, and and a lot of it is sort of single combat between pilots or whatever. And the thing is, when somebody gets shot down, you know, they'd be taken back to the pilot's mess and looked after as a brother pilot. Right. Right? Because there's this sort of fraternity of aviation. Yeah. and, well, you know, most famously, Marshal Boussicot, who led the French vanguard at Agincourt, was captured mm. and 
died about four or five years later, it's still in England because yeah. the French crown couldn't afford his ransom. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. I think he wasn't he wasn't locked in a dungeon somewhere. He right. was an honoured guest in somebody's house. He just wasn't allowed yeah. to leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like that that kind of um international brotherhood that kind of peerage is is a lot of sort of what i'm trying to sort of get at with the podcast so um we, i talk about gods von berlicking and of course a 16th century knight who um was he was a robber knight okay. this is somebody i've never heard of so just say his name really slowly so gods or godfried um mm-hmm. gods is just short for godfried von Berlickingen. or von Berlickingen. okay yeah and he was uh early 16th century knight he was um he was a robber knight. He was he called himself a poor knight. Okay. Um, so poor is in without wealth rather than yeah. like bad at knighthood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but so he he like learned from family members and uncles and whatnot about feud warfare, right? Mm-hmm. So like you and I have beef, and so I'm gonna capture all your peasants and I'm gonna take your trade carts and I'm going to burn farmsteads and stuff like that until you apologize. <laughs> and, reasonable, you know. And, and so that, that kind of like low simmering warfare was, again, like it was warfare, but it was also like the goal is to like capture your opponents yeah. and force them to negotiate with you rather than murder them. Um, and of course, it looked very different if you lived in, say, Nuremberg, where all of your trade carts and your merchants and stuff are being captured by these bandits out in the hills. And, and also and then it looks you very have to different. pay enormous ransoms to them, you know. Yeah. And it looks very different if you're not a knight and they just kill you. Yeah. 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 Right. So this this yeah. really only applied to rich people, and actually one of the reasons why some of the armor is so fantastically spectacular is because it's this giant statement on the battlefield. Look, I am worth a fuck ton of cash. If you <laughs> <Yeah>. kill me, <laughs> you get to keep the armor. Yeah, but that's all you get. But if yeah. you capture me instead, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, um, so sorry. Yeah, so so Gotz is uh, pretty famous because he wrote an autobiography um, Mm -hmm. in his 80s. He died when he was like 82. And he wrote an autobiography that was uh, sort of a a retrospective justification of his various feuds. (laughs) Okay. And uh, and it's really interesting. And so one of the the things that he he lost his right hand in 1504. He was like 22. Oh, my God. So he did both of this with... Yeah. Just one hand. Well, with That's with an iron hand. He had an iron prosthetic that was made for him. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he uh, he spent basically from 1504 after he lost his arm to 1525 or so. This was at the end of the German Peasants War. Uh, he was basically captured and put in house arrest for like, close, like 16 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he was brought out of retirement by Charles V because he needed to like – invade North Africa and France at the same time and needed dudes. And so he's like, hey, Guts, you're popular. Like, round up a bunch of your boys. We're going on an adventure. And and he did. And, like, Guts talks about, like, how he's been in house arrest so long, he wasn't sure that he'd have the clout to, like, recruit. And the instant that he let people know that he was out and recruiting again, he had, like, hundreds of people who were, like, flooding to him. Wow. And then almost all of them died of disease when they got to Austria. So it's... Ah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it's so the idea of the podcast was to like look at guys like that, right? Who yeah. are very stereotypically masculine and violent and participants in these 
dueling and feuding and warfare cultures and everything and use them to break it down and to talk about in more detail about what all that means and and why right. it's important and why it might be applicable to modern historical fencers. Right. Uh, do you know how he lost his hat? Uh, it was he a, a cannonball that was fired by a Nuremberger who was actually right. on his side. It was a friendly yeah. fire incident. Hit the pommel of his sword. Yeah. And it split the pommel in half and it drove half of pommel into his wrist. Wow. That is detailed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, okay. we, like he, he was actually at the time riding up and down in front of the siege lines of a city called Lancehood. Okay. Wanting people to come out and joust him. Right. Like single combat. He was like challenging yeah. these guys to come out and fight him. And, and this Nuremberger fired. And I th so he was carrying a spear. Yeah. We know that because he says that he looked down and he saw his hand hanging from a flap of skin and the spear was like under his horse. Yeah. So he was carrying a lance. And so I think that the cannonball either hit like his scabbarded sword or like a, a sword on like his scabbarded like on his horse. Yeah. Um, but it, anyway, that's just surmise. But yeah, it was the uh, half of the the, that's his, the pommel splintered off and drove up his arm. Yeah. And so they, they, they did the kind of, they were pretty good at amputations. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was... He was treated uh, – he was actually brought into Lancehut, the city that he was helping to besiege, um, and was in there when there was a sickness called the Red Dysentery that was sweeping through. And so a whole bunch of the defenders of that city died and got, got sick with it and survived. So he managed to After survive. After having his hand chopped off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is one yeah. tough, tough Yeah. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not everyone survives having their hand chopped off in, in 1502. No. Oh God! Okay. All right. So um, you've also had a discussion of Donald McBain, correct? Yes. Any anyone yep. else we should know about? Uh, so the first four uh, episodes, which are were, they're out now, I think our sixth episode is coming out. Um, I'm not sure when when this podcast will release, but. Um, our next episode is coming out on I'm Sunday. I'm not sure so, either, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit chaotic over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the very next episode is coming out on this Sunday, which is the September 18th. And that's about John Brown. Oh, right. John Brown, um, yeah. the chap who absolute nutter, anti-slavery guy. Yeah. Um, who, um, wow. Oh, I was reading about this just the other day. He was. He tried to take the armory at Springfield. Is it? It was Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry. That's it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but so the the second sort of half of, of this first kind of season of episodes are going to be less about sword fighter guys and yeah. more about uh, guns <laughs> and <laughs> okay. uh, um, a few of that. But like the first half or so, we've got. Um, so we started with William Marshall. We did Gods von Berlickingen. Um, we had the Duel of the Mignons, which was a French yeah. duel in the 1570s. Oh, that's, a, that's a fantastic yeah. story. It's like six of them dueled and five of them died. Something yeah. like that. Yep. Uh, I think four died. One was like really badly injured for the rest of his life. And then the fifth one very lightly wounded. A like minor scratch, scratched. yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Donald McBain. And the yeah. last episode we just we had out a couple weeks ago was Alexander Hamilton. Okay, because yeah, he he dueled with a pistol, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so we 
the the way we're doing it is we have these biography episodes uh, and yeah. they're around an hour and a half, two hours long or so. And then every two weeks after that, we have a Q&A episode. So listeners can send in questions and uh, me and Tony will respond to them after we've That's gotten them and chat idea. about it. Yeah. Um, and the idea is like, you know, I'm, I'm at least in some definition, a professional historian, right? And I, I think yeah. like history is and always has been collaborative. And I think there yeah. is a sense among consumers of history that there's like a big difference between academic history and like history that people can like, you know, feel and interact with and everything. And like it, there, there really isn't. It's, I shouldn't it's be. just like, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big like historiography, like theory nerd too. So I try to like okay. bring theory into it and discuss it because again, it's not scary. It's not, it's just another kind of layer of interpretation. Okay. I'm, I'm guessing that quite a few of the listeners right now are thinking, what is historiography? Uh, it is the easiest way to describe it is it's the conversation between historians about particular topics. So okay. when I research, say, John Brown, the historiography mm -hmm. of John Brown has come to various conclusions because everybody who studies John Brown comes at it from a slightly different perspective. Yeah. Um, so with John Brown, especially like, you know, like you mentioned, there, there is this belief that he was insane, right? That he was a crazy person. And so people that are studying kind of that idea are going to come away with slightly different conclusions I mean, and use slightly he, different he evidence. Did, he did at some point, um, like, was either he did it himself or he was present when somebody got, people got literally chopped to pieces with sabers. Yeah. That was called was the Potawatomi cool Massacre. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And he was, well, he was, he was but, happy about that. But the was thing is, not? right. It's, it's, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. There's, <laughs> Good there's a, uh, <laughs> there's, so there, like, he did this only a few years before the civil war when hundreds of right. thousands of people got shot to pieces on battlefields over the yeah. same question. So were yeah. all those people insane too, right? So it's it's a difficult question because the this and I, I do talk about this in the episode. Like the perspective that he was he did it because he was insane was something that was pushed by the sort of moderate Republicans of the time because ah, okay. they didn't want to look like they as anti-slavery activists in a in a sort of a very mm -hmm. kind of I don't know, not very intense sense. Yeah. They didn't want to be associated with somebody like John Brown, who was literally willing to kill people to end slavery. Right. Right. And so the, the angle that he was insane and aberrant became very attractive because they didn't want to be painted with the same brush. And so, whereas the Southerners were looking at it, it's like, well, no, no, he is an abolitionist. This is what all ab abolitionists are like. This is what they want to do. They, they want, want to come to a, a house and chop it up with sabers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that question actually becomes really important in the historiography sure. because how you approach it and how you deal with it is, is sort of like a, it's a, it's an easy way to suss out the various kind of approaches, right? It's a, you're mm -hmm. the, the answer that a historian will have to the question of whether John Brown was insane is going to say a lot about their methodology, their approach to the question and the sources that they use and the point they're trying to make. Do you so, think he was insane? No, no. Okay. I think he was, um, extremely and unusually committed to an ideal. <laughs> he was also very quirky in the way he raised his kids. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but then actually um, that sort of quirkiness was not that uncommon back then. No, so it no. wasn't. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, he he was a he was a product of the Second Great Awakening, which was a big sort of religious movement at the time. And when you look at sort of when you compare what John Brown was saying to memoirs of Civil War soldiers, especially people who fought on the federal side, mm-hmm. um, and especially the people who fought on the federal side who were abolitionists before the war, uh, he has a lot of similarities. Um, right. And and this this was something that John Brown was not unusual in. The idea that he was willing to kill to answer the question about slavery, which um, I see, I think is fair. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, if if you see somebody has a slave, and the best way to free that slave is to kill the person who has a slave, I think the person who's taken a slave to own another person has kind of sacrificed <laughs> their right to be treated like a decent human being. Yeah. I mean, and that was uh, yeah. If, that if, was... if it's necessary to kill him, fair enough. Right. And uh, like you know, ultimately, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit about the Civil War. That's a mm-hmm. product of like a very particular historical theory called the Lost Cause, oh, yeah. um, that basically tries to minimize the role that slavery played in the Confederacy. Right. And you know, ultimately, the, the the only the only answer to give to like the Lost Causers is that like the Federal side, the Union, did not start the war to end slavery. That wasn't the issue. The issue was to restore the Union. Yeah, And there were quite a few very prominent leaders of the federal side, like George McClellan, who wanted to do it without actually disrupting slavery at all. They didn't want to treat it. They didn't want to deal with it. It was a political question they deal with after the rebellion had ended. Right. But the Confederacy was from day one, page one of everything that they ever wrote, was willing to kill to preserve the, the institution of slavery. That was right. what they seceded for. And that was what they began the war for explicitly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, they said so themselves at the time. Yes, yeah. that's, that's and there's, 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 there's just no, there's no other way to look at it. In, so, you know, so here's a question for you. Sure. Uh, okay. There is no question that there is a romance to the Confederacy mm-hmm. that, you know, enabled all sorts of like songs and you know, popular culture and... Okay, when I was a kid, um, I watched the Dukes of Hazzard on TV and their car yeah. has... The General the, Lee, yeah. Yeah, has the <laughs> Confederate flag on its roof and I had a yep. little model car and I go, broom, 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 broom. There is no way in hell I would have been playing with a car that had a swastika on it. Right. But fundamentally, there isn't really much difference. No. So how... Did they manage to pull off this this sort of romantic um, ah, what's the word? Sort of disguise. Yeah, that I mean that's a really complicated question. But <laughs> for the for the most part, like a lot of it was was early twentieth century or late kind of nineteenth century sort of ideas of American nationalism. Right. Um, so it. This wasn't something that happened immediately after the war. And a lot of pictures that you see of like Union and Confederate veterans like shaking hands at like parades and stuff were staged Mm -hmm. specifically to give the impression that this was an aberration of the point of the war was to preserve the Union. And so you have to have some kind of rapprochement afterwards. Yeah. And so another person that I cover in my podcast, Teddy Roosevelt, actually talks about how his family had ancestors on both sides of the war and he like starts off 
a, like he wrote himself like an autobiography of his like childhood and mm -hmm. that's what he starts with is basically like i had i had ancestors on both sides of the war obviously like most of us did right and he's yeah. he's perpetuating this idea of national unity and this sort of you know and it it it, it has this element of obscuring the horrific atrocity that was chattel yeah. slavery right yeah but that was it served the interests of the american state you know, it served the interests yeah. of of individual states within the American state, and it, it was it was a long process that was not just let happen. Right, there was a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to it as it was going on. But basically, the the late nineteenth century, the early twentieth century, is where a lot of these Confederate statues that are being taken down now were initially mm -hmm. put up. Um, the, like, and that goes into the nineteen twenties and thirties of this this recasting the war as mm -hmm. this. Again, this aberration of national unity of something that that had causes that were more important than slavery, right? And and, and yeah. so like leaning on thing, like taking things out of context and saying like, oh, look at this, you know, Union commander said this about slavery, and like, yeah. oh, look at you know the there was racism in the North and stuff like that. And it's like, of course it was. Yeah, that's <laughs> all true, <laughs> <laughs> right? But when you the take it out of context and, yeah. and use it to serve this particular historical theory, it, it gives this impression that. It, it wasn't about slavery, right? That it wasn't actually a war about preserving the institution of chattel slavery uh, and whatnot. And it, it, it was, uh, it's something that obviously still has elements that are expressed in the culture today. Um, yeah. And it's a really, really effective propaganda campaign. It was like terrifically yeah. effective propaganda campaign. Yeah, because, you know, I, I listen to quite a lot of country music and mm -hmm. Dixie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's where, you know, it's mint juleps and hard work and right. hand tooled leather saddles and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the whole sort of, yes, millions of people, you know, enslaved to make it. Right. So, but basically, to give you the leisure to sit on your, on yeah. your porch and sip a mint julep as the sun goes down, um, is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, to round it back to historiography, yeah, right? Please, yeah, that's, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you're, so, you're better at this podcasting yeah. thing than I am because I was about to go on a whole other track. <laughs> um, so basically, like you have the question, John Brown, sort yeah. of question mark, giant question mark, and in order yeah. to to ask effective questions and to give give reasonably well argued answers, you have to look at basically everything other historians have said about John Brown. Okay. And compare them all together, right? And and the product of all those historians talking about slightly different topics from different perspectives creates this conversation. It's and the that's historiography. equivalent of a meta analysis in science. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's it's like the literature review uh, right. in other things, right? And so okay. like, so historiography isn't it doesn't have like the answers. It's just it's the process of collaborative research and compared you know, comparison research and, and things like that. Mm. So it's, um, it's just consultation with other historians about the same questions is basically what it is. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. Now I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, do you listen to the show? I do. Yeah. You do. It's yeah. very rare for one of my guests to actually listen to the show. So you know what's coming. And well, yeah. I sent you the questions <laughs> in advance, so you should know what's coming anyway. All right. Okay. So what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Um, so I think there, I, I've been requested several times to like write a book about Dussac. 
about DSEC. Uh, and yeah, okay. Because so I, I did I did the the DSEC videos and everything, and, and again, yeah. like I started working with the DSEC because I wanted to do rapier. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, that. and I got sidetracked with it, and I was like, this is actually really fascinating. And I was told by several other people, it was like, like no one is fencing with DSEC the way you are, like no one. And okay. so like my my friend James Riley told me to make the videos. And so I, I did that because he asked me to. Right. And I've had other people ask me like, hey, when's your book about DUSAC coming out? As if it's been something that I've been working on. <laughs> and I haven't I, at all. Okay, so why why a book? Um, I don't know. I, that's what people want, I think. I think it's... I think working from books is a bit easier than videos. Really? Um, yeah, I think. Uh, that's just me, though. I, I, okay. I can't speak for everybody's brain, but the way my brain works, like I, uh, I, I, I can vibe with the written okay. word really well. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> it's I, probably I, why I'm a historian. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I produce books and courses. And for mm-hmm. me, from the production side of things, if I need to lay out a complete linear argument or a complete picture of something, a book is the best way to do that right um or several books yeah because often it doesn't fit inside just one right um but for teaching people to move video is better yeah right so um you actually you might want to borrow my workbook approach where you've got the text and but wherever you're discussing a what, is, what are you holding there? Hey! This, this is my beginner's course, basically. Oh, excellent. So it's foundations it's, of fencing. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. it's based so on the, longsword. But do you have do you have links to videos of the actions in the text? I intend to. I don't have them yet because I haven't shot okay. them. Okay. All right. Okay. Because that, to my mind, is the best of both worlds. So you yeah. can get the whole. This is the structure of the system. This is why we do it this way. This is how it all fits together, which mm-hmm. the book is really good for. But you can also get the videos in there, yeah. which is, this is how it should look. This is how the movement works. Because yeah. people copy movement better from a video than they can work it out. Yeah, book. yeah, I agree. And I mean, the way that, that I work this, right, it's our, it's our beginner class. So hmm. the idea is that in within my club, the people who are at the same level, they're working on the same lesson, work okay. together on class time, and then I'll come and give them an, an evaluation. And if they have questions, I can show them. So like the first like two or three lessons in there are basically just about body mechanics. It's about how right. to make a good cut and how a good cut is a good parry and how you make those with the strength of your whole body. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is they read it, right? And I, I was a college professor for some time and I know that expecting that all of your students to have read the homework <laughs> uh, yeah, is not right. always true, nah. but I expect nah. it nonetheless. Um, and then they, they go through and they work on it and then I'll give them like a quick evaluation and they move on to the next lesson. So there, it, there's the intention is that this is this is a book for my students, which is why I haven't really like promoted it too much, mm-hmm. but it is available on Lulu and I don't have any problem with people using it. Um, I, but the, the, the idea is, sure. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is that it's it's something that, <laughs> do, that you do, do with... You are, you are allowed to plug your books on my show. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> it's part, of, it's part yeah. of the kind of podcasting covenant. When you yeah. come on somebody's show, you're allowed to plug your shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. And, uh, like, the intention is to have video versions of each lesson that are right. put up that people can go and look at. Uh, I okay. just haven't gotten around to it yet. 
global pandemic and everything, you know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so, so you are thinking of putting together a Dusak book? Yeah, it's something. It's it's an idea I've been munching on for a while. Um, I'm not I'm not sure exactly how I want to approach it right. because there are several methodological directions I could take. Right? Yeah. Um, I could do something that's just Myers Dusak. But the problem that I have, the problem that I personally have, is that, well, why would I need to write a book? The book is already there. <laughs> sure. That's, people keep asking me about small sort stuff, and I'm like, yeah. just read Angela. Right. It's all there, and it's even in yeah. English. So, right. yeah. Um, and, that, like, you know, it's not perfect, and I think there's a lot that's more implied or mm -hmm. things that, 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 like, we as, like, the Meyer Freifector Guild have inferred over the course of, like, you know, lots and lots of yeah. fencing and, and talking and whatnot. Um, that I think could, it would be beneficial, I think, to have a book that's basically like Rob Rutherford wrote his um, 16th century rapier book that's basically a modern interpretive book of Meyer's rapier, right? Okay. And what I would probably do if I were doing it just on Meyer is that I would approach it in that I'm using Meyer's specific Dussac chapter, but I'm including all of the other stuff that's not in that chapter. So we've got yeah. all the all the basic fundamental philosophy and all of the mm -hmm. um, the other stuff that's in like the rapier section or even the polearm section or whatever. And yeah. if it's useful to understand what you're supposed to be doing in the first drill, right. I'll talk about it so that it's right there. Yeah, it's like like in, in my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice book, uh, which is just longsword plays from Fiore. But where you need to know a dagger play for what he's saying to make sense, I include yeah. the same sort yeah. of translation, transcription, explanation, video, etc. for the yeah. dagger play because you, you need yeah. to you need to you need to see the whole book where necessary. Right. Yep. Yep. And it's that's hard to it's hard to do unless you're a person like me who reads obsessively and reads very detailed stuff and supports <laughs> historical context and you know like. I, I've done that work, so like, not everybody has to, and yeah. it's one of the things that I try to like instill in my students. Is like, you know, it took it took us a long time to get to the point where like, you can recognize a Myrus by the way they move. Yeah, and same, that wasn't yeah, true when I started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th that wasn't true well, when I started. Yeah, it um, wasn't true for the Fiori stuff for a very long time. It still isn't yeah. in some cases, to be honest. Right, um, and getting getting to the point where like a student can in their first few months sort of get that is yeah. man i wish i had that when i started <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so okay, yeah there so might be a there might be a dissect book on the horizon sometime i just i i have absolutely not started working on it yet i've just thought okay. about it <laughs> all right okay um all right my last question somebody gives you a million dollars or similar random amount of of imaginary money to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide how would you spend it I th so, to improve the community generally, what I think I would try to do is uh, set up some sort of system where clubs with an interest in it could access high-quality wrestling instruction. And whether that's, oh. whether that's like ringing, right? Like, yeah. like we get like a, a ringing expert or whatever to, to go around and, and teach. Or if it's literally just they get some time at a judo club and get to play around. Yeah. That's, I or think, honestly, everybody... Any, any wrestling style Anything, do. anything. Yeah. And I think that there's... 
there's so many things that are really difficult to to click in your mind in, in the German philosophy, right? The five words and indes and all yeah. this other stuff. And I think that having even just like a couple of hours of, of good wrestling instruction will make you instantly feel yeah. what those mean. And yep. then if you can feel what they mean when you're wrestling, you can apply it to the sword. And I think that would get us closer to the sort of historical kind of athletic culture, yeah. right? Because everyone sure. wrestled all yes. the time. And so like, I yeah, think I mean, it, the King it, of France um, and Henry VIII yeah. wrestled at the field yeah. of the cloth of gold. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think Meyer has this, it's actually in his disac section, he talks about how uh, I don't approve of grappling with this weapon, right? And so people will take that and be, obviously this is because it's sport and it's because this is effectual and blah, 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 blah. And I honestly think that what happened was Meyer hangs a shingle in Strasbourg and says like fencing instruction. And like these kids come up and they're 17 or 18 or whatever and they pay him and he's trying to teach them how to like fence. And all they do is like use the Dutzak to block and then start wrestling. And he's like, yeah. knock it off. Stop fucking wrestling. <laughs> You're trying to learn how to fence. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I think I think honestly, like having having a, a better a better culture in HEMA of people with experience wrestling and and they can apply that to their fencing, I think would make us all better fencers. For sure. Do you know if there was if there was one thing that I kind of wished I'd had access to when I was a young martial artist back in the day, it was wrestling. Yeah. 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 Because I had fencing, and that's super helpful, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But I've never been much of a wrestler. Yeah. Which, and as a Fury man, is is a disgrace. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm now at a point where my my skeleton does not tolerate wrestling. So. Right. Um, yeah, I can do joint locks and stuff, but I'm I'm much more of a hitter by nature. Mm-hmm. But yes, a solid wrestling foundation would have done me the power of good. When I were a yeah. lad, so I'm I'm entirely in favour of your of your scheme. How how would you go about setting it up if you had the money? Um, I think I'd probably try to find uh, like a good group of like recommended wrestling instructors. Um, and okay. again, whether whether they're they're guys, um, I can't remember his name, uh, Tim something on the East Coast, who's a, a really terrific ringing guy, um, or just people you know, good instructors who are judo guys or bjj or whatever what what right. have you but just like have them either as a sort of traveling group and i would like pay for their upkeep mm-hmm. as they're traveling around um or have like a almost like a scholarship fund for clubs to to draw is, from to pay for time like because we, we have like a bjj studio that that there's, there's to bjj us and judo everywhere yeah yeah and it's so, i think it's just it's limited interest. It's limited expertise. And cause like, I'm not comfortable teaching my guys anything beyond like basic falling or yeah. like some of like the dagger clinches and stuff like that. Like when it comes to wrestling, I'm just not qualified. Um, so when we want to do things at my club for wrestling, we have to like rent specific space and then we have to bring instructors over. And I mean, we've got guys in Michigan. Uh, there's a guy named Cameron Metcalf who's, um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who's a terrific wrestler. And, you know, we try to have them to come over and, and kind of help us out every now now and again when we can. And it's just not often enough. And if we had yeah. the money and the time, like we'd have them over every weekend or we'd, we'd go over in a big group over to, to Grand Rapids and learn. And we'd do, you know, a weekend long seminar or something like that. But Maybe I just set don't up have a the relationship. Expertise. Set up a relationship with your local BJJ club. Yeah. I, like 
we we rent space from uh, from a place nearby every now and again, but the last time we did that was before the pandemic. Right. So <laughs> it, it's just been a while. No, but maybe having some sort of like fairly regular. Yeah. Your guys, your guys go and train there, and their guys come and train with you if they have yeah. an interest in swinging swords around or whatever. And you know that yeah. just that sort of sort of collegial relationship with your local martial arts clubs might might help. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but the the idea would be to sort of help clubs kind of set that up, um, yeah. whatever the local conditions would be, but just to like okay. get so more wrestling out there. Here's my question: How do you get instructors who can't wrestle and don't want to wrestle because they don't like wrestling? Because they like stabbing people with swords from far away. They don't like wrestling because it's smelly and sweaty and disgusting. Um, how do you get those people? to get into the wrestling uh dagger i think is how i would do it right. dagger is what led me to get an interest in wrestling because like i i think i'm pretty good with a dagger okay but i'm a i'm a terrible wrestler <laughs> because i don't see how those different. two like, things are possible <laughs> <laughs> like, um well the thing is when when somebody gives you their right arm yeah i can work with that I don't yeah, know sure. how to how to get in there and take it. <laughs> ah, and that's what okay. wrestling teaches, right? But like sure. if if somebody's coming at me with a murderous attack, which is what I think the context of most dagger stuff is, sure. really trying to kill you. Yeah, it's not a knife. If fight. you get if you get your cover, I can do an arm wrap, I can do a throw, I can like I'm very comfortable with that just because it's yeah, like, oh, too. press elbow here, put the arm on the shoulder yeah. here, you know, throw the guy on his face. That that stuff like it's it's easy, but it's getting in with somebody standing like this and being all like the way that like uh, Fabian von Auerswald says like if somebody's just standing up straight, don't worry about them. But if somebody's like crouched low like this, <laughs> you know that they're a wrestler, so you have to be careful. Um, I just don't know how to make that stuff happen. I'm, I'm just not. I'm. I don't okay. have a sense for it. I don't have a feeling for it. I don't have enough experience with it. Um, and I wish I did. I, I honestly, I was. I was on the wrestling team for a single day in middle middle school, and if I had a time machine, I'd go back, <laughs> grab my skinny self by the shoulders, and say, "Stay it, <laughs> keep doing it." <laughs> um, yeah, one problem with wrestling clubs generally is that most wrestling styles have a specific starting point. Yeah, like yeah. judo, there's a particular start position, mm -hmm. and they wrestle from there. And Greco-Roman, there's a specific start position, and they wrestle from there, and so on. And it can be difficult to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, yeah. You know how do you, how do you how do you how do you get into where you want to go if you if the starting position is different? Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe a sort of broad curriculum of yeah, ringing and judo and BJJ and stuff yeah. like that. And then here's a thought: what we do because we've got infinite money, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. It's monopoly money. Yeah, that's right. We get we get a cohort of people who are interested in such things, and we train them up to sort of you know, I guess black belt sort of level. So not terribly, but solidly through the beginners course, they know what they're doing. They can play with this stuff, um, but they don't have to be like world class wrestlers, right? At judo, Greco Roman, BJJ, maybe the Russian sambo stuff as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's once you've got one, you'll pick up the others faster. Yeah. So so we're yeah. not talking about like ten years of each person's life. And then, from that, create a sort of – I was going to say generic, but I think comprehensive is better – comprehensive wrestling system 
which can they can then go out and teach to all historical martial arts people who aren't doing ringan but mm. need to add some wrestling to their to their chops. Yeah. Yeah. That's that yeah. I that, would also I, I would also recommend everybody plays around with Fabian von Arsfeld's Wrestling in the Pit, which is one okay. of my favorite games. <laughs> so the idea is is uh you've got one guy who has to put his heel in like a small like divot. Yeah. And he can't move his his foot off the divot. Right. And then the other person has to hop on one leg. Okay. And the idea is that you're teaching the the guy with one leg. He's got the advantage of movement. He can approach in whatever way he wants. But he has no stability. But he has no stability. And the other guy has no movement, but a lot of stability. And Arsfeld basically says, like, much art can be learned from this, and it is funny to watch. (laughs) (laughs) So are they wrestling? Are they wrestling or are they using swords? Yeah, wrestling. Wrestling. Okay. Yeah. And it's – um. I just I love that little phrase like, you know, we we have this sense that everything's so serious and everything's so deadly and everything, mm. and we've got this guy who's like teaching you know Austrian dukes how to wrestle, who says like do this because it's funny, right? Like, <laughs> and, 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 and you know he's he's not a duke, right? Right. And these dukes can be can be supercilious sons of bitches, honestly. Yeah. I, right. I'm actually, but, it, but you've got it, them hopping around your cell. Right. Awesome. <laughs> um, I'm also pretty convinced that if you if you look at the art yeah. of uh, Fabian von Auerswald and you see who it's dedicated to, and I, I can't remember the exact guy. He's again yeah. some Austrian duke, but if you look at at um, portraits of his patron that were yeah. painted at the time, and then compare it to the artistic rendering of his opponent in many of the wrestling scenes, it's the same guy. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, wow. he's got like he's got the same beard and everything, yeah, the same yeah. facial features and everything, and I'm convinced that it's the same guy. And so yeah, he's got this dude like bent over his leg and a few things <laughs> like held upside down and like, <laughs> and it's 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 funny. Like, way way to piss off your patron, unless yeah. the patron has a really good sense of humor or is into that I, sort of thing. I hope so. Yeah, and I mean, if not, what what's he gonna do? Our well, well, can turn him into a pretzel. <laughs> but, but he's he's gonna withdraw his patronage. I mean, you can't you can't just go around. You know, these days you can dedicate your book to anyone you like. I mean, I could. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a new king now, King Charles the Third. Yay for King Charles! Yeah. Right? I could dedicate my next book to King Charles the Third, and there's nothing he could do about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically, I suppose there are things that could be done, but this yeah. wouldn't be a thing. But in like 1500, if I dedicated my book to Duke so and so, and I was living in in his lands. And yep. he saw this book and he decided that he was not pleased. Well, yep. firstly, if I did it without permission, he'd probably have all the books rounded up and destroyed and me thrown in jail. And if I did it with his permit, if I got his permission to dedicate my book to him, because it's, if you dedicate your book to the person, they are in effect, um, uh, what's, what's the word? They are, uh, mine's gone blank. Um, not authorizing, not, Supporting, like consenting to. No, no, uh, they they are endorsing. They are endorsing yeah, yeah, the yeah. work, right? Yeah. And and so this Duke fella pretty much must have endorsed the work. Yeah. So I think I think maybe he he and, and this Asperger chat were mates and probably yeah yeah <laughs> and they just thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, Marvelous. Okay, yeah. so so 
you'll have a Doosak book out soon and a and a system for getting historical martial arts instructors properly versed in wrestling. Mm. Excellent. I think if again if we have unlimited money, I would probably also use some of that to go complete my PhD because I only have ah, you can't right spend now. yourself. You can't spend oh, on no. yourself, sorry. Ah, I would spend no. it on a scholarship fund for interested master's students. Yes, and then you appoint me to run the fund, and I'll give you the money for the PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Exactly. So, what, we got this what, whole <laughs> system figured out. We got it. <laughs> so what's so what's what's the um, what's the PhD? Uh, I would probably. So I my. The the topic I'd be studying is what I would call public masculinity, right? So I'd probably do okay. some sort of comparative study between something like dueling in the 19th century versus dueling in the 16th century or okay. try to trace sort of the origins of like American dueling from, you know, whatever it would be. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the topic would be, but it would basically be about public masculinity in some sense. So like my master's okay. is all about um, late 18th, early 19th century American politics, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and an American sort of masculine culture. So a lot of stuff about duels and the militia and citizenship and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, but I like, I would probably do it more to aid my HEMA work than I would have when I started my master's degree. Right. So, um, and it would be a good excuse to really study these, these different cultures and yeah. maybe, maybe just, just to give your PhD a bit more depth, actually practice those styles and get yeah. funding to go off and study with various people. I would, uh, yeah, like try yeah. to do, try to set up all the, the cool stuff like uh, Daniel Jacquet with... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was actually listening to that episode just the other day. So I was mowing oh, my lawn. that's a great episode. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That, that man is obsessed with armor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's great. I would, yeah, I would, if, if I had, if I had the money, I would have... Uh, a nice set of 16th century armor for myself too. I could wear with my poofy pants and it just, I'd never take it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd have to at some say. point, but only very grudgingly. Splendid. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. It's been great yeah. to meet you. Yeah. I, uh, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you that free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package, which includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Ari Posso. She is the founder of the Gladiolus School of Arms and... Many, many moons ago, she trained with me in Helsinki, so it's lovely to have an old student of mine on the show. You don't want to miss it, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.